You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I thought we'd start with a prayer from the old prayer book, 1928 prayer book. Um, it's a class on mortality, on death, on dying, on grief. You know, a little small preface. I never know if people walk in. Um, like I said last week, uh, it's not a neutral topic that we're talking about here, death, um, dying, uh, aging, you know, lots of ways people will sort of bring a lot of different stories, a lot of different emotions, a lot of different uh, aspects that people are going to bring into the room today. I'm aware of that. So with that, trying to sort of keep it broad enough to let people connect where they need to connect. Um, uh, I have my stories, you have yours in terms of what we're bringing in the room and uh, trying to handle that with some care. I also hope to leave some time. Didn't do a good job of that last week. Surprise. Um, uh, of leaving some time for some questions, some interaction. Um, certainly, I won't be the only person in the room who has something to say. Um, uh, Tommy, can I ask you another favor? Yeah. Would you mind going, just bringing a couple more chairs in yeah. for Mary Kay and some others? So, thank you very much. Um, thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so, with that, uh, here's a prayer, this is appropriate that you would pray at somebody's bedside, for instance, when they're dying. Um, the, the old prayer books, I mean, one of the things we talked about last week was we, we, we interacted with death much more readily in generations previous to ours, especially, so you'd say, about two generations previous, certainly three, four generations previous, just because you couldn't not deal with it. You, you, you killed what you ate. People died in homes. Uh, when somebody did die, uh, family and friends handled the body. They carried it out. They, they, they were near it. They tasted it. They smelled it. They touched it. It was, it was right there. It was readily present. Um, we don't do that anymore. That's not all bad. I'm not saying we should go back by any means, but it's just there. And so the prayer books are a lot, um, you can go back certainly to the old ones, the ones from the like the 1662 or even the 28, and they uh, they deal with death much more frontally. They call it death. Uh, their prayers very specifically at the death of a child, um, at the death of a woman who's giving birth. Um, they use words like the churching of women after childbirth because it was just so close to death. All those were just so. So even as I talk about it, I get a little bit of, you know, the emotion rises because it's just such a pregnant, and that's where Paul comes in with Romans 8, groaning is in the pains of childbirth. We looked at that last week. Um, the pregnancy of death, the nearness of death, it was always so close. And I think there's something that's important for us as a church to, to call a thing what it is and certainly to call death, death, and not try to, uh, to dull it or soften it, because it's not to be accommodated. We're not to sort of shake our hands. This is all sort of a, a, a preface, and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll say this prayer. Um, to, uh, to call it what it is, an enemy of God, the last great enemy, but the one that Mark most surely has met its death, the death of death. And we'll certainly look at that a lot more next week. This week we're going to spend a lot of time with Job. So here's a prayer, as it says in the rubric, a prayer for a sick person when there appeareth no small hope of recovery. O Father of mercies and God of all comfort, 
our only help in time of need. We fly unto thee for succor on behalf of this thy servant, here lying in great weakness of body. Look graciously upon him, O Lord, and the more the outward man decayeth, strengthen him, we beseech thee, so much more continually with thy grace and Holy Spirit in the inner man. Give him unfeigned repentance for all the errors of his life past and steadfast faith in thy Son, Jesus Christ, that his sins may be done away with by thy mercy and his pardon sealed in heaven through the same thy Son, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So, um, death. Uh, thread I want to follow this morning, um, the beginning leading us to, to Job, is death is not natural. Um, getting ready for this yesterday, I was flipping around as much as you can on Amazon, um, you know, where you can sort of look inside books and look at previews, and I looked at some children's books on death, and some of them are really good, um, some of which I knew already, but I want to get a kind of feel for that again, and some of them you couldn't read very much, some you could, and it's not completely bad, um, I want to say that, but, uh, but the word out there, so to speak, and, and it would make sense, this is what I would do um, in that proverbial question, if, if if I, if I didn't belong to the Lord, what would I think? What would I feel? How would I make sense of the world? How would I teach my children? How would I want to teach myself? What would I want to tell myself over and over in order to make this world make sense, to make it okay? And I would say death is natural. All things die. And this is what the big thread through the books were, um, that everything dies. Grass dies, it grows, it withers, it fades away. Birds die, um, people are born, they live, they die. Um, even rocks and mountains, uh, though they seem eternal, they're not. They also come and go away. Planets, they would even say, come and go away. Uh, one woman, not a uh, children's author, but, but Diana Athill, that may mean, that may mean, that may, yeah, that name may mean something to some of y'all. She's a editor, an English editor, um, especially prominent in, say, the 70s and 80s. She's now 100 years old, um, so she's trying to make sense of her own death. Uh, uh, but prominent English editor wrote to convince herself, perhaps, and others. That's unfair. She's making sense of the world the best way that she knows how. She says this about death as, she, as it approaches for her. Death is the inevitable end of an individual object's existence. I don't say end of life because it is part of life. Everything begins, develops, if animal or vegetable, it breeds and then fades away. Everything, underscored, not just humans, animals, plants, but things which seem to us eternal, such as rocks. Mountains wear down from jagged peaks to flatness. Even planets decay. That natural process is death. It's not a new idea. Um, Luther, a uh, long time ago, I saw this, found this in, in a sermon in 1532, uh, said this, trying to hammer, hammer the point home, that unless our eyes would be touched by grace, what the prayer just called um, the inner man who's been awoken by the Holy Spirit, as Paul would pray that the eyes to see, or I'm sorry, that, that the, uh, the eyes of the heart have been opened. Uh, outside of that, uh, here's how Luther put the same idea even 500-something years ago. The heart and wisdom of no man have hit upon the idea that death is the penalty for sin, but that all men have thought and held that death is our natural lot. Just as a dog or a pig or any other animal dies, or as the sun rises and sets, 
Grass grows and withers, and all things are perishable by nature and pass away as they have come. But Scripture teaches us that our death does not come about in a natural way, but that it is the fruit of and a punishment for the sin of our father Adam, who so flagrantly violated the exalted majesty that he and all his descendants who were born on earth must be the prey of death forever, and no one on earth can escape or prevent this calamity. So, just the first thing we want to sort of remind ourselves again. Death is not natural. When I say that, it's not to be, we don't shake hands with death. We don't try to make friends with it. We don't try to accommodate it. Um, I used to sort of uh, told myself, stop using the Lion King, you know, the circle of life thing. But a great service is being done. Did y'all see the trailer for the new Lion King? It's a live action. So we get to use this Preachers and pastors like me get to do this for another 20 years to talk about the circle of life and how bankrupt it is. You know, that the grass grows and the antelopes eat the grass and the lions eat the antelopes, but then the lions die and they feed the grass. And it's the great circle of life, Simba. It's just the way things are. It's the way it's supposed to be. Luther, before him, Paul, um, Jesus, all the way back to the reed of Adam, wants to say that's not the way it was intended. That's not the way the story ends. Death is not natural. It's not just the circle of life where death is a part of life. Death is death. And it is ugly. It is, uh, it's, it's stark. It's harsh. And it, and it draws you up 100% of the time. Um, Dylan Thomas, a poet, um, well-known poem, people will know this, um, cried out the heart of every one of us in that part of our hearts which has not been touched by the light of the gospel. He wants to stand against uh, Diana Athill and, uh, and, and speak with Shakespeare. Methinks you do protest too much um, when we're trying to convince ourselves and our children that death is no big deal, that it's just a natural course of events. And Dylan Thomas comes in with some force and says, Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Dylan Thomas wants to stand with his hand held up high in the face of death and say it is not natural. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows it's not natural. It's not something to just sort of lay down and say, well, okay, sera, sera, whatever, you know, eat, drink, and uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and you know, live this day, um, carpe diem, because tomorrow we don't know, and just sort of, you know, figure it out. That's uh, a it's a great word if you're young and in your 20s and life seems good, but if you're completely alone and excised and forgotten, uh, like we'll look at Job. Uh, where you've been systematically, it feels, um, the experience of life seems that you've been totally removed and exposed and made vulnerable to feel the pains of death. Um, or as the psalmist would say, to be stretched out on the rack of life so that all your enemy can count each one of your bones. That's the way a lot of us will feel sometimes. When I say we, I mean people. Over the course of all history, uh, most people don't have the comfort of uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Eat, drink, be... What? What is that? All I know, all I taste 
is is uh, is bitterness and loneliness and sorrow and guilt and shame and fear. So saith every man. Um, so what's the hope? What's the hope for each person who's ever lived? Uh, what's the hope for you? And what's the hope for me? Let's look at Job, shall we? Um, let's let him be our uh, our muse for a little bit. Um, I don't know if I'm going to use that at all, but like this time, not heavy on the photos today, like we are on the uh, the art today. But thought we'd stay with it. William Blake, very fascinating uh, early romantic um, uh, from England. who was a poet and a and a, uh, an author and an artist of of all sorts. He he illustrated a lot of the Bible. And these are some of his prints from Job, just to get a sense of Job and his family. Job was a friend of God and, uh, you know, blessed family, one of the wealthy men of, of the earth. And, uh, and this Shamal picture, this would be Job and Job 1 before the travails start. And here is Satan inflicting boils on Job. Job here and Satan standing on him with his wife, you know, lamenting right there. And, and all this is beneath the omnipotent hand of God, as Job would describe it, where uh, where Job is being, um, again, systematically removed and placed under suffering. Um, when you talk about death, you talk about suffering. There's no way to avoid these two things. And here Job's despair um, amongst his friends uh, who were there and Job crying out to God, where finally he spins to turn. And the book of Job becomes Job's lawsuit against God, basically. Um, he wants to ask, you know, where are you? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? And we're going to pick that up in Job 19. Uh, where Job, a lot of us would be familiar at least with the story, uh, comes through. I'll go ahead and read Psalm 19. This is the great passage which gets to, uh, uh, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that's what we want to sort of figure out. Who is he talking about when he talks about his Redeemer? Um, so, I've got a lot of paper this morning. Let me make sure I'm in the right place. Job 19, uh, verse 11, and then 13 through 27. So just to give you a flavor of Job. Um, uh, Job's one of the great examples in the books of the Bible hasten to say this, if you just picked up the Bible and said every word in the Bible is the holy writ of God, I would say that's true, but not every verse in the Bible is meant to be you know, advice for how to live. And Job's a great example of that, because you get to the end of Job, and God wants to say all that you've been saying, you know, half-truths at best. Um, where were you, Job? The Lord speaks at the end of Job. When I made, when I laid the foundations of the world, where were you? Uh, who was my counselor? Were you there, um, telling me what to do? Do you know my wisdom? Um, and Job's trying to make sense of his life, this side of that revelation, this side of his meeting God face to face, as he's had systematically his family removed, his friends killed, his wealth taken away where he's there crying out in despair, alone before God, karam deo, just Job. Everybody else is heads down, and Job's straight up, open, exposed, vulnerable to God. And he says this, He, that's God, He has kindled His wrath against me and counts me as His adversary. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me were wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me, my close friends have forgotten me. 
The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me, and when I rise, they talk against me. Absolute, complete isolation. Naked I come into this world, and naked I shall depart, he says earlier. Um, where uh, no man brings anything into this world, and no man takes anything out except his sin. Each one of us come into the world alone, and we leave the world alone, outside of Christ. I hasten that. I can't even speak without adding that. Um, but outside of Christ, this is the cry of death of how we're being removed and exposed beneath God. All of my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. And now he says a prayer, but not to God. He prays to his friends, Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Can, I mean, it's, it's the pathos, the suffering uh, that's echoing here in Job's language of, isn't it enough that God is against me? Do you too have to leave? Um, the hand of God has touched me, and it is not good news at this point for Job. And now comes the great um, revelation, which we're going to try to make sense of. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in a rock forever. Job, what's he saying here? He's saying, I wish I could write down my complaint because I'm going to die. And then they would live on so that someone else could take up my case against God. I wish that my words were written and inscribed in a book, written in stone with an iron pen and led, because I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin is thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So, let me see if I can help us make sense of that. Who is Job talking about? Now, 100% full stop, this is a revelation of Christ himself. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and I shall see him face to face on the last day. Paul echoed this, um, in his, especially in the letter to Corinthians, the first Corinthians, that uh, we shall one day fully know, even as we are fully known, and I shall see God face to face. But here, Job is, is, is crying out against God against his adversary. God has arraigned himself in such a particular way that Job wants to uh, to write down his case against God so that somebody else will pick it up. This is what he said just two chapters before in Job 16. He, God, has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck. He dashed me to pieces. He set me up as a target. His archers surrounded me. He slashed open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall. 
He breaks me breach upon breach and runs upon me like a warrior. I mean, it's some of the most violent uh, awful and awful words in the scriptures. Um, who's he talking about? His redeemer. The one, the word is a double entendre. That the one will come. Job is saying, I don't know how it's going to happen. But my kinsman, trustee, redeemer, ransomer, the one who will come after me. Uh, my family member who will take up my case as my advocate after I am dead. That's what that word redeemer means specifically. But then also, as we will know it, when Christ, our brother, as we are adopted by the same father, uh, as we are adopted by his father, I should say, uh, has brought us underneath that same redemption that Job is crying out for. I know that my redeemer yet lives. I don't know where he is. I can't see him. I don't know where he is. I don't even know him, but he's there. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. The word there is probably better translated dust, as in ashes to ashes, dust to dust, from dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. When I die, and all that's left of me is dust, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and he will stand here, right where I am, in my own dust, and plead my case on my behalf. For after my skin has thus been destroyed, Yet in, or it might be said, without my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. So how do we make this leap from what Job is crying out as a case against God to something which is laden with incredible hope? So Job gives us insight into something that's remarkable, the gospel. God being so for us that he's against himself. So for us as our redeemer, as our advocate, as the one who upon him uh, did God lay the iniquity of us all so that we might have his peace, his healing, and his restoration even in our death. Who do we flee from? Job would say we flee from God. We flee from none other than the adversary, God, who has arraigned himself against me, who has touched me and brought me the suffering. And yet, who do we flee to? My Redeemer who lives. We flee from God to God is Job's great insight of the gospel. When he asserts that we will know that his Redeemer lives, that our Redeemer lives, he's asserting that his next of kin, our brother, will come and take up his case against God, um, whom he shall see and behold face to face and not another. Uh, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall stand on the earth. Uh, Job is reckoning with the fact of Psalm 22, which I mentioned earlier, which, which Christ cried out on the cross, My God, my God, how could you have forgotten me now? How could you have forsaken me in this moment? Um, the psalm speaks of the dust of death, Psalm 22 does, where he speaks towards the psalm, verse, 20, verse 15. My mouth, Christ would speak and uh, speak this prayer, My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Uh, 
and you, God, lay me in the dust of death. And there it is. And then we'll stop and let everybody, we'll interact a little bit. Our Redeemer who lives, who speaks the words of the psalm on our behalf. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My stung ticks to the roof of my mouth. And you lay me. Christ is saying this. You lay me here on the cross in the dust of death. Our Redeemer lives, who at the last stood in our dust, the dust of our death, um, and who himself was laid by God in the dust of death. For he was bruised and crushed for our iniquities, and led like a lamb to the slaughter. For it was the will of God to crush him. So says Isaiah in chapter 53. We have the Redeemer who has joined us in the dust of death, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case. This is what Job wanted the whole time. Pleading our case is our only mediator and advocate. Incessantly hearing our prayers, groans, our moanings, our groans, which are prayers that words cannot express. And Christ pleads those groans perfectly, interceding for us, pleading our defense of God. Yield, withhold thy hand, look upon thy servant Job, look upon thy servant John, look upon thy servant Tommy. Look, look, I died for him. I died for her. Now, the peace which passes all understanding, rest and comfort and keep and succor and preserve and go forth and give you the freedom to face our deaths, in fact, freely. That's the freeing word of the gospel. And it's... um. And it's work at disarming death. And this is where we're going to hit next week most fully. Um, let me hit pause in just a minute. Um, that once this is reckoned in this world, um, where, uh, echoing Doug's sermon today, where we could cry out with Paul, uh, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been laid in the dust of death already. It is now no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so now... We can freely go to our, our deaths, our physical deaths, because we've died the death, uh, the, the, the death that matters, the death of Job, the death that Job tries to describe, I should say, in there in Job 16 and 19, uh, letting us face our physical ends with, with something other than perhaps, I don't know her, but Diana Atwood, trying to make sense of a natural course of life. I'm just saying, well, it's... We're like grass, and that's all we are, um, just material atoms that'll sort of go back into the dirt. So let me hit pause. I know that was not a neutral way, but, but Job's not a neutral book. I mean, to go into Job is to go into to deep water. So um, help me. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Where was I wrong? Um, have a little bit of time. Yeah. One of his friends? Yeah. I, I have not kept this righteous law. Yeah. I'm in. Um, I was just thinking about the two, the Redeemer and the Redeemer. Yep. Yeah. How would you like me to comment on that? I mean, it's, it's true. Um, uh, where the accuser, well, in different parts in Job, will want to say, you've not kept this righteous law. 
So get busy. <laughs> You've still got time. Keep the law. Keep keep do something, Job. Make it better. Um, and that Job knows that's a bankrupt idea. Um, so that's a truth, but the prescription behind the truth is wrong. Um, speaking within Job. Um, is that is that where you are, Carrie? Is that what you're talking about? So, so Job didn't suffer because of something that he did, and that's what that friend, that accuser, wanted to say. Um, that you've been systematically isolated here and placed beneath the hand of God because you sinned. Um, it would be later uh, that that Job would know. In other words, once he was with the Lord, that no, I, I wasn't a sinner because I sinned. I sin because I'm a sinner. Um, it's an aspect of who we are. We come into this world, again, you know, we have one thing, and we leave with one thing, and that's our sin. Um, and Job came into the world with his sin. He didn't have to do anything to, uh, to, uh, to get sin. It was already there. It's with you. It's with me. Yeah. Anyone else? How about the idea that there's another accuser that's... Uh it plays a much more predominant role in this whole story. Right there in the beginning. And, and yeah. this, this sort of pale human analog. Sure. Absolutely. So the word Satan means accuser. Um, so he's right there. Um, in the very odd, odd story at the beginning uh, where there's a dialogue between Satan and God. Uh, there's certainly an echo there. Uh, and it would be picked up later in the Reformation that the law always accuses. It's also right there. It's the instrument of the, the good, right, and holy word of God, uh, but for a purpose that's alien to God himself, and that is for our um, uh, coming to an end so that he would be able to resurrect us. But that's another story. The thing in the whole book is, is right in the where God says, have you considered my servant Job? And I'm like, well, don't put my name in that. Line. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. I'm glad Job's in the Bible. Absolutely, 100%. But Job has to be read alongside the rest of the scriptures. If you wanted to create a theology, uh, a Christian theology, just in the book of Job, I would say you cannot do it. Um, you have to. You have to have the rest of the revelation of God. And that's sometimes what people want to do with Job. Um, and I want to say thanks be to God that that's not the end of the story. Um, yeah, so Ellis. It was interesting to me that Satan was you know, attractive, right? Yeah. Is that because the law was attractive? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I don't know that. I think it's William Blake. Um, well, it is. He, 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 I don't know. I'll have to think about that, Ellis. That's a really good point. Um, I do not know that. Yeah, Angel of Light. That's right. So. Well, I can say this about William Blake. Uh, I'm, I'm glad God put him on earth and, and had him crank out as many of these lithographs of woodcuts as he did. Because the book is 42 chapters long. And in the Bible in the year blog, that equates to three chapters a day to 14 days <laughs> where the web guy's got to come up with a picture. <laughs> Providence of God, sir. So that's right, sir. Not for that, I don't know what we're going to do. 
that's very convenient for William Blake. So. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, Frank. Yeah, I said that I talked about that last week and I don't regret, but I hit it too hard. Um, I'll say it again with all forbearance because I, I still use that phrase sometimes just because it's moved in such common parlance, but I don't like it. Um, it comes out of Mary Baker Eddy. She's the one who started it, um, a Christian science, the, the founder of Christian science, where she had an idea and it makes it feel better that this world is bad and the spiritual world is good. And so the other place, going to a better place, passing on um, uh, what we want to what we want to call heaven, but we really don't have that conception. It's just sort of wanting to defang the pain and just the ugliness of death. And I know some of the stories in here and how we've interacted with death, and it is just not pretty. And it tries to make it pretty where we pass on and escape the uh, the ugly, dirty, fleshy stuff and go to the pretty, nice, airy, immaterial and spiritual stuff. And so we pass on from this world to another. It's not an ending. It's just sort of a natural movement into something else. That's the origin of the phrase. That's not how most of us use it now, but it's, an, it's a euphemism, and that's not all bad. I want to say, you know, he's gone to a better place, or he's passed on, or she passed, or expired, or, you know, I have lots of euphemisms for death. For myself, um, I try to actually honor somebody when I'm with them uh, as they're dying, or somebody who has died. I feel like he died, and that hurts. When somebody you love dies, it's not good. It's not good. Um, now, we who have hope, the certain and sure hope of the resurrection, we don't even pass on. In that sense, it's not sort of a passing. It's, it's much, somehow it's much more stark. In the twinkling of an eye or in the sound of a gong, it's just bang. And then they're, they're there. It's not a, it's, there's not a journey. It's not a travel. It's a, it is provision. The eternal now of, of, of a life in God, hidden in Christ, in God. Um, that's the Christian hope. Um, and hope, in that sense, does not disappoint. It's not like, I hope it doesn't rain today for the EYC as they're doing Advent Bowl. You know, they're doing something outside. It's not that kind of hope. It is a certain and sure hope of the resurrection. Uh, you cannot find the bones. I'm certain of that. Uh, and if you do, we amongst all should be most pitied, Paul would say, about the bones of Christ. Um, that is our hope, that Christ Jesus died, yea, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And he's not in the tomb. He's not in the grave. And so as he is surely risen, so shall we who have died with him also surely rise. That's the Christian hope. That's not passing on. That's I once was, but now am. I once was dead, but now I am alive in Christ. Um, period. So it's not passing. It's, uh, it's death and life. That's, that's the background of the phrase. So. Yeah, thinking about our, um, and the prayers of the people, 
in, in our services where we talk about this transitory life, mm -hmm. um, you know, being baptized, you know, and looking into that, it's like we're, like you're saying, we're baptized into Christ's death. Yep. And like last week, somebody brought up the question of, you know, where did death begin? Where was, where did death in this world start? And they talked about the first Adam, and um, you know, is is Christ is the second Adam plays that role. How he. That's right. And you were talking about Holy Holy Saturday. It seemed like all was lost. Yep. And God says, "No, y'all say death. I've delivered my son into a world." Is if God doesn't exist, y'all are y'all are living as if God doesn't exist. Yep. This righteous person dying. Holy Saturday, it seems like all is lost, and then God says, "Y'all say death, I say life." Um, Sounds like a cheer. Y'all say death. Yeah. Well, it's, trying to lighten it up before we leave here. So. Yeah, I mean, the, just the the transitory life. That's right. Is a That's Christian right. we never really die. That's right. It's a transition from this life to, to the next. Yeah. So last word, and I'll let everybody go. Um, great. It's, he called it an essay. I would call it a book because it's probably 100 pages. Um, a guy named John Owen. Oh, it's good, but I wouldn't read it because um, the title is so good. I love the title. The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. That's a word worth going out on. That's what we can stake our certain and sure hope on if and it's all it hinges on easter if christ was raised then we can say that death met its death in the death of christ and that's what we're going to talk about next week i hope next week is just nothing but good news that's my intention um it'll be the bookend to job uh, uh like i said you can't just read job and say like well now i guess i know we got to have more and i hope next week is the more um that in the death that there was the death of death in the death of Christ. Thanks be to God. So, Lord, uh, take these words humbly, so in fact feebly offered, and uh, uh, correct me where I was wrong, um, uh, but strengthen the word of hope that you would have for each of us as we reckon with, with death, Lord. We make no friends with your enemies, um, but we give such great thanks that in the death of your Son, death has met its death so that we shall now be free to live in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.